it was Paul Tudor Jones who said that he can't think of a, of a worse environment for financial assets. And you definitely don't want to own stocks and bonds and you need to aim for capital preservation. I can't think of anything better than silver and gold. Well, hello there, my friends. Chris Marcus here with you for Arcadia Economics. And excited for today's economic and silver talk to have Peter Kraut back on the show. Many of you have seen Peter before, sometimes with Gwen Preston, uh, and also at Silverfest, where we were going through calculations of how much is an ounce of silver really worth? I mean, we see the inflation getting out of control. We see, I don't know if it's a World War III yet, but certainly an escalating situation that does not look good. All the things that many people turn to silver towards, yet we see the price sitting there. Uh, unfortunately, Ross Benham told us that the plunge protection team and the government tamps it down and has put a price cap. So a lot of interesting dynamics. And it's easy for people to think, ah, silver, who would care about that? Why would that be important? Although fortunately, Peter has just released a new book called The Great Silver Bowl, which, uh, Peter, I was looking through it uh, last night. Seems like you've covered quite comprehensively a lot of the things going on in the silver market and as you and I were talking about right before we hit the record button for various reasons it seems like the kind of situation where it could just sit there and nothing happens until one day it does and then the day that it does unfortunately you don't have the time machine to go back to the day before but at least to help make these decisions while people can still make them as easy as possible Again, uh, let me pull that cover back up. You've just come out with the great silver bowl, revealing why silver is a generational opportunity that could make you rich and able to retire comfortably. Um, again, let's, I, I will give my disclaimer. It's not legal financial advice and please folks at home uh, do things responsibly. I wouldn't with that said, Peter, I do think you could well be right. And uh, anyway, it's great to have you on in here. Congratulations on the new book. And how's everything going with you today? Uh, well, thanks for having me, Chris. I'm uh, glad to be here. It's always fun to chat with you. And uh, I'm doing well and excited about the book. Uh, it's been a long haul, but uh, you know, I, what I really did was I uh, kind of took um, all the knowledge I have on silver. Uh, there, there's always more, but I tried to put everything kind of into one, one place. So, so people could actually understand uh, the background, the lead up uh, to the opportunity, and then, you know, really what makes silver different and uh, and stand out in terms of an opportunity, and then how to go about taking advantage of that uh, through different kinds of silver investments, how to build a portfolio, and then ultimately, uh, eventually, you know, we're going to end up in a mania phase and how to uh, how to spot. Uh, an eventual peak in silver and and cash in uh, the profits. Well, that makes sense. That's that's what I've been aiming for the last 10 years. <laughs> Some days going better than others. But I would imagine we're really talking to well, maybe more than two, but we'll say two demographics where A, people who might be newer to silver and are seeing 8 9% inflation prints on a monthly basis. I don't know if they're aware yet of how doctored the inflation numbers are and um, but people who might be new to silver, maybe have never thought about it before. And then there are the 
experienced silver investors who have been, you know, they have some some track record of that feeling of getting hit over the head with a shovel repeatedly. <laughs> so maybe two different groups there, but why don't we start first with people who aren't familiar with silver and see what's going on with the Fed and are, are new to it. What would you say to them? I'd say they really have to have a really close look at silver. Silver's been money for millennia. It was the first true international currency. It is actually part of uh, our currency in, in, you know, I'm going to say large parts of the world up until about 50 or 60 years ago was actually part of our money until uh, it was removed from coinage. Uh, so, you know, if you're talking about 50 or 60 years versus several thousands years of years when silver was part of, of our money, you have to ask yourself, um, why is that? Uh, what has changed? Why was silver for so long part of money? Um, why was it important to be used that way? And uh, why is it uh, likely in some form, if it doesn't at least become part of money, to, to gain tremendous amount of value and to help people actually protect, uh, protect their savings and their retirements? Well, it's certainly interesting. You mentioned that now where, let me pull this up. We see that in the midst of this war taking place in Ukraine, we had Russia go to perhaps a temporary floor, shall we call it, of uh, backing the gold price or the ruble with gold. Now they're discussing on a, uh, seems as if they're discussing, all right, now how do we, now we're in this situation, do something more permanent and sustainable. So like you said, there are other people noticing what's going on and maybe into demographic number two for the folks that have been seeing this for a while and they wonder, all right, well, we see the money printing, we see the inflation, we see Fed governors front running their own monetary policy, yet silver seemingly gets clobbered on the open every day. What did you find in the book that would be well-suited for that demographic to hear today? Right. So, you know, first we talked about a demographic that maybe hasn't followed silver that closely and now uh, one that maybe has. Um, what, you know, something, maybe a comment that applies to both is that stocks and bonds have been in a 40-year bull market. That's, that's historically uh, an outlier very much atypical, certainly uh, aided by tremendous, a tremendous amount of, of money printing and uh, by pushing interest rates, you know, historically lower at, we're still today at historically a 5,000 year low in interest rates. So that's, that's something I talk about in the book. I show a chart that goes that far back. And um, what's interesting is that uh, this is by a guy named Homer who wrote the book and he uh, points out himself, he actually comments that, you know, uh, as empires uh, sort of mature and uh, progress and reach their peak, interest rates reach a bottom. Uh, I guess it's a sign of progress. Makes some sense. Uh, but unfortunately, what happens is those empires don't last forever. And when they start to unravel, uh, interest rates start to rise. And if you look at what's happened in the last four or five months, We've seen, you know, basically it really very much looks like the end of a 40-year uh, bond market, bond bull market. Uh, 
Um, bonds, the average bond is uh, a seven to 10 year treasury is down about 10%. Stocks are down about 10%. Um, anyone looking at their, at their investment statements are, uh, you know, that have bond investments are more than likely disappointed, if not shocked to see what's happened to bonds. Bonds are supposed to be a safe investment. And so, um, you know, the 60-40 uh, bond stock portfolio, in my view, is dead. You know, that's been a tremendous run, 40 years. You really have to start looking at alternatives. And um, precious metals are certainly there. Uh, actually, something I talk about in the book is that if you look at, you know, if you ask the average investor, where's where's has been the ideal place to be invested over the last 20 years? will almost invariably get the answer stocks, right? seems like an obvious answer. And yet, if you look at the chart, that's absolutely not what has happened. Since 2000, um, stocks, even with the, the recent pullback, are up about 200% or so. Uh, gold and silver are up nearly 400% or more. So they've easily been outpaced by, uh, they've e easily outpaced stocks. And um, they are certainly the place to be going forward. You know, um, in the news a day or two ago was uh, was uh, Paul Tudor Jones who said that he can't think of a, of a worse environment for financial assets. And you definitely don't want to own stocks and bonds and you need to aim for capital preservation. I can't think of anything better than silver and gold, really. That is truly, um, you know, a place you have to at least have some exposure. I'm not saying put all your eggs there, but you absolutely have to have some exposure. I think that's a great point you mentioned at the end there of, perhaps not going overboard like I did. And no, this is not my actual basement, but I'm trying to get the subconscious triggered because I mean, as much as, I mean, we had a weird set of, cir set of circumstances over the past 10 years, where if you look from the lows in uh, 2009, I think the NASDAQ, even with its recent 25% dip, still about a 10 bagger. Although again, to me, it's like when you're printing so much money like that, and you're in the stock market, you're left with that nagging thought in the back of your mind. Well, hey, whenever they ever do raise interest rates, we could be in for a trouble. And NASDAQ is already down 25% since November. So again, a lot of these decisions easier when you know which way they're going to rig it. Although Peter, I'm going to pull up uh, the table of contents because something you were mentioning, the, in you have a chapter, chapter five, the Nixon shock. And as we just mentioned, uh, you know, this, a lot of people see gold and silver as, you know, something archaic yet since that time period, when the dollar was removed from gold, I mean, gold was 35 bucks back then 42 in the two tiered system. I think the last time I, I checked it, it was a 55 bagger, which would even beat the stock market yet also to what you're getting at in your book. I mean, okay, the last couple of years haven't been so easy depending on what level you may have gotten in or out at silver, but here's Nikolai Patrushev, high level official for Russia that was in that article we just mentioned. And he's talking about the same thing. You know, the current global system is built solely on trust, including the United States as the issue of the world's reserve currency. Half a century ago, that gold factor was present in 1971, but it's disappeared. And while maybe gold and silver not reacting on a day-to-day -day or even month-to-month -month or year-to-year -year basis, it, a lot of the factors that led Nixon to take the U.S. off the gold standard 
it sure feels like we're seeing something like the collapse of the London gold pool part two playing out in slow motion, uh, which again, you get into in the book, but uh, what else could you touch on there? Yeah. I mean, uh, interesting points because uh, what I find uh, useful about looking back at, you know, when we were taken off the gold standard by Nixon 71, uh, it's not an accident that uh, that was the start of silver's biggest run, uh, you know, that we could, that we could see in the past uh, perhaps a century. And so, you know, I, I did call the book, the great silver bull for a reason. I think that I honestly believe that we're in the, uh, the biggest, we're in the, the start at the very least, or at least part ways through um, the biggest silver bull market that, uh, you know, this generation will will get to experience. And um, we're still lucky. It's still early in that bull market. There's a lot, you know, we haven't reached the mania phase. And the nice thing is that we have an analog. Nixon took us off the uh, the gold standard in 71. Look what happened to gold and silver in that decade. Um, stocks were flat. The Dow, the S&P, um, before inflation, actually returned nothing in the, in the 1970s. Gold was up 1,400%, and silver was up 3,700%. So, and that was when you, uh, you, know, you had some semblance of, uh, even being off the gold standard, you had some semblance of, I guess, you know, fiscal prudence, if you want to call it that. It, you know, it, the money printing started uh, in earnest, but still. Um, the, the debt to GDP in the 70s was about 35% uh, percent of, uh, of GDP. Uh, today, we're, we're at 130%. So, um, you know, if, if silver does anything close to what it did in the 70s, I think it'll dramatically surpass that. Um, you know, we were really in for a tremendous ride in both metals, but silver in particular. We know silver outperforms gold in bull markets. It more than doubled uh, gold in the uh, 70s bull market. I think we're going to see that again this time, um, and uh, it'll build even from there. Yeah, and of course, while you have gold perhaps more formally recognized as money, we've had silver as money, and here you mentioned Lyndon Johnson rejected taxation to pay for Vietnam. So even a couple of years before leaving the gold standard, Similar dynamics in silver, and for folks who, you know, maybe a little younger or, or haven't looked into what happened, what could you say about Lyndon Johnson and removing the silver from the coinage? Right. So it's interesting that, um, you know, if you look at what happened, this was uh, the same year as, uh, as um, oh, sorry, you're thinking, I'm thinking back to uh, when uh, when uh, gold was confiscated and I'm thinking about what silver was actually confiscated that same year but uh, it doesn't get nearly as much attention uh, but you're talking about when silver was re removed from coinage uh, needless to say uh, you know that that limited the ability to um, to uh, expand the money supply you there's only so much silver and, uh, you know, if, if you're actually using a precious metal like that to back the, uh, the currency, uh, you need to acquire more if you want to expand your money supply. Uh, and, you know, silver mining is a, a difficult business, just like gold mining. You can, it'll only grow so much per year. And so uh, it was obviously a lot easier to just remove silver from the coinage and, um, and, and not have to, you know, stick to fiscal prudence and uh, go ahead and... Um, you know, print as much as you needed to, to, to be able to support wars, 
foreign wars that were obviously very unpopular. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. We see what happened uh, with, uh, with precious metals after that and, and what has taken place with the, with the money supply ever since. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned the connection with the war there, especially now that we have a war going on now. Now, I did learn from Twitter this morning, thank you, Zero Hedge, that according to Joe Biden, if you don't support what he's doing, you're now an extremist. So <laughs> extremists we are. Yet it just is interesting when you see the same inflationary cycle that has played out for thousands of years. I know it's, you know, people say, hey, we've been hearing this silver talk for a couple of years or decades, and it seems like nothing ever happens. You know, I, I love the idea of the efficient market hypothesis. And if you, there's a planet that actually works like that, you know, let me go. I'm, I'm, I'm in with that. But to the degree that it doesn't go like that, and it doesn't, sometimes it could take a couple of decades, but when we're looking at the factors building, to me, I guess the, the main risk is the timing. It's ultimately, unless everyone is just going to bow to the teat of a government that spends money without paying for it, as Nancy Pelosi and the gang stealing endlessly, is, is that a fair assessment of the risks of silver? Because obviously, you know, it's, it's tough for people to watch, you know, their buddies, you know, in the stock market or Bitcoin making a fortune. You would think silver is the one that left last standing with some catching up to do. What, what is the risk toning silver? Where could we be wrong here? Um, well, I mean, I don't know that, you, that there's that much risk of being wrong. I think your major risk is being early. And uh, I'd much rather be early than, than not be there at all. And so, uh, you know, if you look at, uh, like I say, the, the risk, I don't see really much risk of much downside. Uh, you know, silver is, if you look at its high from 2011, if you inf adjust with government numbers for inflation, that was about a $60 uh, equivalent today. We're at 23. If you look at uh, the 1980 high, that was about 125. And really, it should be actually closer to about 170 or 175. So we're dramatically lower from any previous high in silver. Um, you know, the fact that silver bottomed at, at $12 in March of 2020, when it took a hit and there was, you know, uh, a panic, obviously both gold and silver, um, you know, silver bottomed at $12. And yet when it started its current um, secular bull run in 2000, it was $4. So it actually bottomed at three times that low. To me, that meant, you know, we're still absolutely in the midst of this long-term secular silver bull. And uh, the reaction that it had um, subsequent to that bottoming at $12 and it went to nearly $30, Outperforming gold's gains, gold, you know, in, in mid-2020 did 38%, silver did 152% in about five months. And so when I saw that kind of outperformance, I said, okay, you know, we really are uh, kicking into high gear in the, in the sort of acceleration phase of silver. Um, can it move sideways? Absolutely. It has moved sideways ever since. It's been trading since August of 2020 from about $22 to about $29. And so, as you mentioned at the beginning, um, people can get frustrated, needless to say, you can buy in at 27 and be sitting now at 22 or 23 and feel like, you know, what did I do? But 
that that's just how silver acts. If you know that, and I do certainly talk about that in the book, if you know that silver is volatile and, and goes through periods where it does nothing and, and you're prepared for that, then um, you'll be amongst the, the people that will benefit because you'll have patience for it and you'll take advantage of that volatility. And there, there are multiple ways that, uh, that I talk about in the book how you can take advantage of that volatility. But you certainly should not let it um, scare you away or make you hesitate from participating in investing in silver, neither in the physical silver nor in the, uh, in the stocks. There's just such tremendous opportunity. You know, we've seen it before. And people who want to, you know, have some decent potential for upside, that doesn't mean that they need to go to the highest risk junior explorers. If you look at what, for example, Pan American uh, Silver did in the, uh, in the 2000s, from I think it was about 2001 to 2008, it was up 16 times. 1,587%, if I have my, my numbers right. And uh, Silver Wheaton in the uh, sort of latter part of the first decade of the 2000s was up something like 1,700%, 17 times. I think it was from about 2005 to 2008. These are two of uh, some of the largest uh, silver-focused companies, publicly traded companies in the world. And they pr provided those kinds of returns within a matter of years. So again, you don't have to take outside ri outsized risks. You can participate in this market. I, I really think that everybody needs some exposure to silver. It's, it's just, you know, it could be that, that tiny portion of your portfolio that allows you to compensate for potentially so much uh, risk of loss in the balance of the portfolio if you maintain, you know, exposure to things like stocks and, and uh, regular stocks and bonds. It can really be um, a, a true uh, a true hedge to that kind of uh, that kind of exposure. Yeah, I certainly agree, and it's interesting when we look at another asset that sim has a similar, not exactly the same profile, but here's some of the cryptos which. Again, if we uh, go with the estimate of about 2 billion ounces of silver in investment grade form above ground, $22, $23. I mean, we're 40, 45, 50 billion somewhere. Here's Bitcoin at 704 billion, even down to the number five crypto by market cap, 48 billion. And I don't know much about many of these projects, so I can't say, you know, to the, the value of the utility, but I mean, it's almost like these are kind of, startups in many cases versus the entire supply of silver and not just the monetary component but you know so much of it being consumed and perhaps you could uh, talk about anything whether it's specific from the book but how gold most of it's still out there but silver i mean we may not be able to have it as a monetary component because so much is consumed uh, what, what could you say about that Absolutely. So there is a section in there, part three, where I talk about how silver is the uh, irreplaceable metal. And I go through several chapters about its utility and, and uh, some, some quirkiness in the silver supply and so on. And so, you know, as you mentioned, silver is not like gold in, in many ways. Um, obviously, it's much cheaper per ounce. That means it's much more uh, widely consumed in an industry. So about uh, about 8% of gold is actually used in industry and about the balance, 90, 92% is some form of savings, whether that's, you know, being owned by central banks, by individuals as investment, 
in the form of, uh, of you know, physical coins and bars or in the form of jewelry, which in my view, in many cases, uh, is investment. Um, with about half of silver being used in industry, that means that you really don't, you, you actually lose most of that consumption every year. Uh, about 20% of the silver supply roughly is, is recycled, is, is in the form of recycled uh, silver uh, in, in, in any year. But, um, you know, it's, it's an extremely useful metal. It's the most reflective, it's the most conductive. And that's why, you know, the single largest use of silver is for solar panels. We're at about 11% per year goes to, to solar panels. And this big push for, for green energy where we want uh, renewables, um, so, you know, solar panels are the cheapest form of renewable energy. So guess what? You know, if you have governments pushing to use more and more um, renewable energy and go, obviously, you know, the, the most attractive projects are going to be amongst the cheapest ones, and that being solar power. Uh, that's going to consume a lot more silver. And where is it going to come from? So I've seen some estimates where by 2050, we're going to need a, a mine supply of silver to actually double. And that's just, you know, across the kinds of forecasts that we have right now. Uh, I, I really don't think that uh, that silver supply will ever meet the kind of demands that uh, that we're trying to uh, allocate to it, especially when you look at the uh, the move towards uh, electrification and uh, and the green energy economy. I just don't see how it could sustain it. Um, you know, even at higher silver prices, that's that's something that I talk about as well. Um, only twenty five percent of silver actually comes from what we call primary silver mines. So. That means fully 75% of silver comes as a byproduct of mining gold, mining copper, mining lead and zinc. So guess what? Those miners, if they you know, have a portion of their revenues that come from silver, it's, it's not critical to them. It's, it's, a, it's a byproduct. And so if the silver price goes up, what if anything can or, or would they do to react to that to actually try and, and produce more silver? And, and even if they could, it's not that easy to, to just sort of crank up a mine. There's all kinds of, uh, you know, you have to finance an expansion, you have to get approvals, and there, are all, there are all sorts of delays. So even if they see, let's say, silver at a higher level, and that's whether it's a primary silver miner or even a, uh, a miner that produces that a, as a byproduct, they see high sustained silver prices, let's say $30. And they'd like to see that for probably a couple of years before they try and do anything to ramp up production. They may actually cause production to go down because what they, they might do is say, fantastic, silver prices are now up at $30. I can actually mine my lower grade ore, produce less silver, but generate the same uh, revenue. So that a higher silver price may actually lead to lower output. So it's just crazy how this how this market can work, and that would just exacerbate even higher silver prices. So these are the kinds of things that uh, that I I talk about in the book, and you know that really uh, help provide a floor and an and a, an understanding of about the the quirkiness of the silver market and how it can really leverage up and, and do so really quickly. And again, why you know people really want to have exposure to this. Yeah, it's a good set of points you mentioned there because, you know, Joe can call it the Putin price hike all he wants, but at least according to any sort of rational analysis I or anybody else in the silver world I've been able to find can come up with, I mean, 
increasing the investment demand, they can have LVMA say that, you know, Santa Claus is going to bring more silver, yet you look at what decisions a miner is actually faced with, not an ideal environment. So also going in the favor of the great silver bull. And Peter, perhaps the last one uh, for you here. Uh, let's see if we can pull this back up. You mentioned earlier about how do you take money off the table? How do you manage this? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a complex question with a bunch of moving pieces because to some degree, let's say it goes the direction where Putin goes with a more overt gold backing to the ruble and eventually that blows things up. You would think it takes silver with it. Now, whether silver actually becomes money or not, do you think we end up where it's like there's some price point where, hey, when silver gets here, that's when you want to sell something? Or do you see a scenario in which we're not really looking at it like that, but it's just like, oh, wow, you know, it used to be uh, get a, you know, this many loaves of bread for my ounce of silver. Now I only need a fraction of an ounce to get the same thing where we actually could could look at it more that way because it's difficult in today's environment when the price you're only getting the twenty three dollars. Um, so in terms of a when a peak occurs, what could you say about that and, and that you mentioned in the book as well about you know because if you get out of silver into what and I agree though with what you're saying you know managing and having a plan in place goes a long way. So what could you say there? So yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're right. <laughs> there are a lot of considerations. You know, if you if you get out of silver, if you sell your silver or at least you know a, a good portion of it, where do you go? And uh, at this point, you know, it's impossible, obviously, to say you need to be able to be, I guess, open minded enough at that point in time and look at what else is around you. Look at what. Uh, makes sense in terms of what may be relatively at least undervalued versus what you're getting. It may not even be a market. Let's let, let's just pick one as an example. Say real estate. You know, it may not be that real estate is undervalued at that point in time, but relative to silver, it may be highly undervalued. That happened in the in the 70s, late 70s when silver peaked. You know, it took 1,500 ounces to buy the average U.S. home. Then at silver's bottom in 2000, it took 55,000 ounces of silver to buy the average U.S. home. Today, we're at about 18 or 20,000 ounces of silver. And I mean, I think that, I don't know, will we go back down to 1,500 ounces per, uh, you know, for the average U.S. home? Perhaps, even if we get to double that, it's, it's a clue that you'd maybe want to start looking at that. Um, you know, obviously, moving into hard assets, um, I think is probably a wise thing if you know if you look around and you see what uh, what makes sense again at that point in time but uh, absolutely there are there are ways that you you'd want to manage it um you know when you when you sell what you can do is you can if you first of all there are, i have four, sort of five four peak uh, potential peak indicators in silver one of them is the fear of missing out sort of an anecdotal thing you you see how people are reacting to getting into silver, if people are flocking to silver, uh, in the nineteen in nineteen eighty, you had people lining up for blocks. This was in the winter because uh, they wanted to go and buy silver. Silver was was you know doubling almost on a daily or weekly basis, and eventually peaking at fifty dollars. So that's a clue. If you see people acting like that, chances are you know we're at a peak or near a peak. The gold silver ratio, which bottomed at fifteen in nineteen eighty, 
were to get somewhere, I think even at twice that, if it were to get to 30 or somewhere below 30, you'd really want to be considering doing some selling. The Dow-Silver ratio moved down in two waves in the 1970s. I think we've already seen the first wave down in uh, the, the Dow to silver ratio and that uh, we're entering that second wave. It's got a long way down to go still, um, but that's something to watch. And then the silver real estate ratio. Um, and you, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing thing either when you sell. I mean, you know, it's, it's impossible to, to, to pick a top. Uh, you know, uh, and, and just as as much as buying, uh, there's something I, I put in there uh, saying I have that, you know, if you buy it at the bottom, which, you know, that's our goal uh, into an investment, you're lucky. If you layer in across the bottom and, uh, and uh, you know, you, you manage to pick the bottom, then you're, you're, you're smart and lucky because you've, you've layered in and you can do the reverse when you sell. Um, you know, if you feel that looking at multiple indicators, we could be at a peak, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing thing. You don't have to sell all of your silver and silver investments. You can start selling it off in tranches and that and maintain some exposure. And if it does continue to ramp up, you could, you know, sell another quarter, for example, and, and perhaps layer out across a top of some sort. And, you know, ultimately, I think you'd always want to hold at least a little bit of physical silver, no matter what, even if you're absolutely convinced that, uh, you know, we've reached a peak and you've seen the peak, um, I think it's always wise. You know, it's preserved its buying power for, for centuries and for, for millennia. I don't see why that's going to change. Um, you know, always own at least a little bit of some physical silver. Absolutely. Well, I certainly think those are good words of advice and uh, appreciate you studying this and also writing it down into the great silver bowl. And Peter, before we wrap up, perhaps you can just let folks know where they can pick up a copy of the great silver bowl to learn how to crush inflation and profit as the dollar dies. Absolutely. So it's available on Amazon um, and Kindle or as a paperback. So you can go straight to Amazon and search the great silver bowl. You'll see it there. Uh, just takes a day or two, you'll have it in your hands. Um, and so other than that, you can go to my website, thegreatsilverbull.com, and uh, you can read a little bit more about the background of the book. And uh, from there, you have links to, uh, to go ahead and buy the book as well. Well, I appreciate that, Peter. We'll have the link. It's in the description field below, so you can go pick up your copy of The Great Silver Bull. Be prepared before all of the action and mayhem goes down and... Uh, Peter, again, thank you for putting this together. Appreciate you stopping by and uh, we'll have to have you back on soon after people have had a chance to go through it and maybe we'll take some questions. Yeah, thanks, uh, Chris. I uh, appreciate it. You know all about what it is uh, to uh, to write a book and get it out there. And, uh, you know, I've been actually uh, working my way through your own book. Uh, you know, tremendous stuff to uh, to learn about. And yeah, I mean, I really did want to try and put everything I knew about silver how the market works and the opportunity that exists and and make it uh, you know an easy read for people and uh, so they could really take advantage of what i feel is a generational opportunity i really appreciate uh, you know the opportunity that you gave me actually today to uh, to 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 make that uh, to make that point to people well i appreciate that and uh, i think it's one of those things where once it goes down people will be quite grateful and you know, maybe an exercise in patience until then. But fortunately, now we have the great silver bowl. 
in the inventory of great books on the silver market. Peter Kraut, appreciate that. And uh, we'll look forward to checking in with you again soon. So do I, Chris. Thanks again.